I'm Sandy, I'm sorry he embarrassed you. I told him it was a bad idea, but he did it anyway. I'm just kidding. When he told me about it, I said, do it. Thank you for Travis. He's such a blessing to us. Well, before I start today's message, I just want to remind you that today we are starting our bottle drive for the Alpha Pregnancy Center. In the lobby, you will see a table with baby bottles. And uh, I invite you and encourage you to take one or even more of those bottles and fill those bottles with change or cash or checks, whatever it is you want, and uh, return it. All that money is going to go to bless Alpha Pregnancy Center that does an incredible ministry helping uh, women in crisis here in our region. Uh, the last day to collect those bottles is going to be Mother's Day weekend on Sunday. So please do not forget. All right, today we're going to continue in our new series, Jesus, the Lord of Everything. And Pat Marotta began this series last weekend. And how many of you enjoyed that sermon? I did. It was powerful. So I pray that as we learn and study God's Word today, that uh, by His Spirit, we will listen and hear His Word and put it into practice. But how many of you have uh, flown with uh, Southwest Airlines, right? A bunch of you. It is something else, isn't it? Southwest Airlines is considered a, a phenomenon in the uh, air uh, business and in, in the business world in general. You know, it's, it's a model for many businesses to follow. And its CEO, he was a CEO for many years until recently, uh, Herbert Kelleher, he would say that when they were looking to hire people, they would be looking for people that had the right attitude and not necessarily the experience or the degrees. He actually said, we don't care much about education and experience because we can train people to do what everybody has to do. We hire attitudes. And the kind of employees that they will be looking for and want to hire would be people that will listen to others. People that were caring, that would smile, that would have a sense of humor, that would say thank you and please. People that would be warm. And that's what they meant, meant by attitude. And I know that all of us have grown up with this drilled into our minds, the importance of having the right attitude, the importance of having a good attitude in all situations and circumstances. When we have a good attitude, we're more effective. And we can be a positive influence among the people around us. But if we have a bad attitude, all of a sudden, we are not as effective, and we are just a negative influence to the people around us. So when somebody says, you have an attitude, it's not a compliment, all right? They're really saying that you have an arrogant spirit that makes it difficult to live with you and, and to be around you even. So supervisors are often 
encouraged to let go and dismiss people with bad attitudes. And why is that? It's because employees or workers with bad attitudes can drag the whole organization down. It takes one negative employee to turn off customers, to frustrate the leadership, and just to spread discouragement among, uh, across the whole organization. It takes one player in a team with bad attitude to disrupt the chemistry of that athletic team and to invite defeat and just a critical spirit in that team. It takes one church member with a bad attitude, with a critical attitude, to take off the edge of the joy enjoyed by the rest of the community and to even quench the work of the Holy Spirit. But when Jesus Christ really becomes the Lord of our life, he begins to do a work in our attitude. Philippians 2.5 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, let me repeat that verse because this is critical for today's message, but it's also critical for our life as Christ followers. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus. Once we become followers of Christ, there should be a different spirit growing and maturing and developing in us. There's people that spend many, many years in church and they don't grasp this concept, the idea that Jesus Christ not only wants to be the Lord of your behavior, he also wants to be the Lord of your thinking. And that is evident in the passage that we're going to, to see today, Luke chapter 9. And as we study this section together, let us allow the Lord Jesus Christ to change our attitude as we relate to four different groups of people. So let's look at our first point. Our attitude as Christ followers should be to hum of an attitude of humble servanthood toward our church family. In Luke 9, verse 46, it says, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. So I think at this point, as the disciples are arguing, there were a couple of issues in their minds. The first one is that all of them, all those disciples, felt that they were at the brink of something amazing and big happening. You know, just a few verses earlier, Jesus had proclaimed that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, the one that the Jewish nation had been waiting for for so long. He had declared that he was going to build his church and that not even hell could stop that church that he was going to build. Jesus had made 
and done amazing miracles. He had fed over 5,000 people. He had raised uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead. He had done amazing miracles and signs. A few verses earlier, we even see Jesus at the Mount of the Transfiguration. We see that Jesus had gone up a mountain, and suddenly his clothing became as bright as a flash of lightning. And then Moses and Elijah appeared all of a sudden right next to him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So the disciples knew that they were at the cutting edge of the coming of the kingdom of God, and they were extremely excited about it. But there was also a second thought in their minds, and this thought was a little bit more troubling. They were beginning to feel that not all of them were being treated the same. For some reason, they thought that Peter, James, and John were receiving special favor treatment. You see, when Jesus went to Jairus' house to pray for his daughter, he took along with him a Peter, James, and John. When he went to the Mount of the Transfiguration, he, he took them as well. And they got the chance to see with their own eyes Jairus' daughter being resurrected and Jesus in, surrounded and wrapped in God's glory and Elijah and Moses right next to him. They saw that. The other disciples didn't. So perceived favoritism can cause hard feelings. So it is no wonder then that as the disciples are walking with Jesus, they are arguing among themselves and asking this question, who is the greatest? And don't we ask that even now? Don't we see that same question being asked, who is the greatest? We see it in politics. We see it in business. We see it in sports when a team is doing very well. All of a sudden, the question arises, who is the greatest? Who is scoring more points? Who is getting more attention from the press? We see it everywhere. We see it in families. Another baby is born, and there may be sibling jealousy. Who is the greatest? Who is the favorite in the family? And unfortunately, we even see this in the church. If we're not careful, there's a jockeying for position. Who is going to fill certain leadership roles? Who is going to be part of a special event? Who in church is going to be given that very special, important assignment? The ego is an amazing thing and it's a constant battle to keep that question in check. Who is the greatest? But our attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Let's see what the next two verses say. Jesus 
knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, this is the disciples, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. At this point, the disciples are just concerned about who is the greatest, about associating with important, influential people. But Jesus is telling them, as he is telling us now, look, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you need to prepare to spend the rest of your life serving and loving people who in the eyes of the world don't matter very much, just like this little kid. He's asking them, as he's asking now, are you willing to serve children as well as adults, even though you may not get the same recognition or honor or feedback or even encouragement? Do we talk as long to an elderly widow as we do to a successful business person? Do we give as much focus to a disabled person as we would a famous athlete? Or a blue-collar work, blue worker as much as we would a CEO of a company? Jesus said, when you serve the least of these, you serve me, and you will be great in the eyes of God. And even then, after Jesus told that to his disciples, I don't think they quite understood what he was saying. Because just a few months later, at the Last Supper, we find the disciples still bickering among themselves and still asking that question, who will be the greatest? And at that point, Jesus gives them another illustration. He takes a basin of water and a towel. And he begins to wash the feet of every single one of his disciples. And he said to them, just as I'm serving you now by washing your feet, I want you to have this humble attitude of servanthood toward one another. And that's the kind of attitude that Christ is calling us to have among each other. Let's look at a second point. Our attitude should be one of gracious acceptance toward other believers. So this passage continues in verse 49. It says, Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. So here we see John, and he sees this unfamiliar, unknown disciple and follower of Christ. And his first reaction is to exclude him and to judge him. It didn't matter to John at that point that a person was actually delivered from a demon. 
All that he cared about was that he, this person looked like a competitor, and he just wanted to stop him. And sometimes we see that same intolerance in, our, in, in different circles in our world today. But let's see what Romans 14 says in verses 4 and 5. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or fails. And he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. And then he says, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own time. Now, the Bible tells us that we should be inspecting the fruit of those who proclaim to be prophets to see if they are good prophets or bad prophets. But if a person believes in the lordship of Jesus Christ, and a person believes in the authority of the Bible, of the Holy Scriptures, and that person has positive fruit, then we shouldn't be judging that person. We shouldn't be criticizing that person. We shouldn't be excluding that person. Ultimately, they will answer to God and not to us. So the Christian attitude towards other believers should be an attitude of gracious acceptance and even encouragement in their activity. And just because this man in this passage didn't share the same experiences as John and wasn't part of John's group and John didn't know him, there was no reason for him to condemn this man. Jesus said to John, Look, don't, don't, don't write him off. If he's doing positive things in my name, he is not opposing us. And we need to recognize that God's family, God's church, the body of Christ is big and is diverse. We need to recognize that there may be churches or other believers who do things differently, who may worship differently, may dress differently, they may, they may be organized even differently, they may pray differently. But the church is a body with many parts. So rather than attack each other and criticize each other, we ought to seek unity based on the lordship of, the, of Jesus Christ and the authority of God's word. In John 17, Jesus prays a beautiful prayer. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. And he's speaking about his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Our attitude toward other believers ought to be like Jesus Christ, be gracious, 
and accepting towards other believers. As I mentioned last week, a couple of weeks ago, I just came back from a mission trip to Peru. Sixteen of us were in that team. And talk about what happens when one person has bad attitude. That can ruin even a mission trip. But we were blessed that every single member of that team displayed the right attitude. And there was a, a desire from everyone to be united in Christ. And you know what? When you're in a different country, food is differently, your body reacts differently to it, and you are in high elevation. At some points, we were close to 13,000 feet high with little sleep. That's a recipe for bad attitude, isn't it? <laughs> but it's amazing how God can transform our hearts. And because we approached this trip and that week together with the right attitude, we were able to bless over 700 people and see about 50 people coming to Christ. It's amazing what God can do with his church when we decide to accept and love one another. Let's look at the third point. Our attitude should be one of gracious tolerance toward unbelievers. So our text continues in Verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, I, I love this question. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Now, you have to understand how much hatred there was between the Jews and the Samaritans. They really despised each other. But instead of despising the Samaritans, Jesus displayed God's love, and he, he sought to be a bridge builder. So while others will avoid contact, Jesus, who was a Jew, would go through Samaria. He would stop in their villages. He would eat with them, talk with them, spend time with them. But now we see this particular group of Samaritans, who as soon as they learned that Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem, they did not welcome him. And then we see John and James, and we see them not being able to tolerate the intolerance of the Samaritans. And they basically said, God, Jesus, let's just fry these guys. Let's call heaven. Let's call fire from heaven and destroy them. And we see this attitude today as well. We see people who are intolerant of intolerance. Most of us believe to be tolerant people. But usually our tolerance is limited and extended 
to those who agree with our worldview, those who agree with our basic philosophy. But Jesus said, if you do good to those who do good to you, what reward do you have? Even the pagans do that. He said, your challenge is to love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you and treat you spitefully. And our attitude, as Philippians 2.5 says, our attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. So he encouraged his disciples to be patient and to be tolerant toward the Samaritans. When they refused to let him spend that night in Samaria, Jesus didn't call down fire from heaven. He didn't destroy that village. He just left and went to another area. Verse 56 and 57 says, Jesus turned and rebuked them, speaking of the disciples, and they just went to another village. Now, an interesting fact about Samaria, this same place, just a few months later, transformed from a place that didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus to a place that became a responsive evangelistic field. In Acts uh, chapter 8, verses 5 and 8, it says that Philip, and this is after Jesus died on the cross, raised from the dead, this is after Pentecost. It says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was a great joy in that city. And a few verses later, it continues, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. What would have happened if indeed Samaria had been burned to the ground? There would not have been this revival. There would not have been this response to the gospel, this new believers, this new church in Samaria. We need to remember that some of the people that we may know who are hostile to the gospel, every time you want to share Christ or talk about his word, they're hostile. They attack you. We need to remember that those same people can be transformed by Jesus Christ and be Christ followers. And they won't be won by vicious attacks or debates. These people are going to be won for Christ by a patient, tolerant, loving spirit. They're not going to be won by calling fire from heaven. They will be won as we build bridges with them. The Bible says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The Bible speaks truth with love. 
So let us speak truth to others with a loving attitude. And love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not rude. It is not easily angered. And let's go to our fourth and final point of today. Our attitude should be one of decisive allegiance toward Christ. The following verses in this chapter records three potential followers who apparently didn't make the cut to become disciples of Christ because of indecision. The first person we could level, label as a security seeker. A security seeker. Verse 57 and 58 says, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And then Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Apparently, this person was probably used to a comfortable life. So when he asked Jesus, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus said, okay, but it's not going to always be easy. We don't stay in five-star hotels. We don't eat in the best restaurants. This walk with me is going to be tough. There are even some Christians today that think that a life with Christ is an easy, simple life, but it's not so. Jesus said, if you follow me, he said that to his disciples, he says that to us now. If you follow me, it's going to mean taking up your cross daily, and there's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be persecution. You may need to toughen up. And then we see another person. Jesus invites a procrastinator to follow him. Okay, a procrastinator. Verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And if you read this, at first, it sounds pretty harsh, pretty strong words from Jesus. But we have to understand that obviously this, this person's father was not dead. You see, back then, when somebody died, they would be buried within 24 hours. So it wasn't the case that his father was dead. But what he was saying was, I will follow you, Jesus. I will follow you, Lord. But later. Because right now, I need to stay home until my father dies. And that could be years. That could be months. So Jesus' answer is, the spiritually dead 
ought to bury the physically dead. But the spiritually alive need to get busy proclaiming, proclaiming God's news right now. A respected Christian leader, William Barclay, says, The point that Jesus was making is that in everything, there is a crucial moment. If that moment is missed, the thing most likely will never be done at all. So this man had stirrings in his heart to get out of his spiritually dead surroundings, but if he missed the moment, he would never get out, and he never did. The third man was sort of a hesitant homebody. Okay, in verse 61, it says, Still, another said, another person said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now, there's nothing wrong with loving your family, nothing wrong with fond farewells. While we were in Peru on a mission trip, I got to see my mom and dad, and that was very special, and we got a chance to have uh, fond farewells. There's nothing wrong with that. But what this man was probably asking was for a few days or maybe weeks to be with his family and party and maybe reconsider his decision. Now, if you go to Genesis 24, we see the story of Rebekah. And he had agreed to go with the servant Eliezer back to Abraham's home to marry Isaac. And the following day after she had agreed to do that, the servant went to her and said, all right, let's go. Let's go right now. We need to go right now. And Rebecca's family reacted right away and said, whoa, that's too soon. Give us 10 days. But the servant said, no, we need to go now. So the family asked Rebecca, do you want to stay, hang around, say your goodbyes? Do you want to stay 10 more days? Or do you want to go to Isaac today? And Rebecca flatly said, I want to go now. I want to meet my man and get married. The commitment to Jesus Christ needs to be one of a decisive obedience and allegiance to Christ that is irrevocable. And we can make that choice right now. Now. And we do it while there's still time. And when we do it, we don't look back. So in the next verse, the last verse of this chapter, Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I want to share a story from Pastor Rex. How many of you enjoy when he tells stories of his childhood, growing up in a Tennessee, in a farm? Usually when he tells his story, his accent changes a little. Have you noticed that? So in honor of him, my accent will change a little too. But he shared this story of the first time that his dad 
asked him and invited him to plow uh, the, the farm with, a, with their tractor, right? And Pastor Rex says, I remember as a boy growing up in Tennessee, the first time my dad let me plow with a tractor. We had a little farm, farm mall tractor. I don't know if you know what that is. But you do, right? I did not grow up in a farm in Tennessee. <laughs> we had a little farm mall tractor, and, and my dad said, now, you fix your eyes on the target at the end of the field and start from the center of the field and just go straight towards the target. It's important that the first furrow be straight because if it is not, it will affect the entire plowing process on the field. So Pastor Rex continues and says, I remember getting about a third of the way across and wondering how I was doing and I couldn't stand it and I just said, I'm going to hold the wheel steady and I look back and sure enough, it was straight. I felt pretty good. I got about halfway through, and I looked back to see if I was still doing okay. And there was a little crook in the furrow. And I thought, that's exactly where I looked back. And I thought, you know, I looked back twice. I wonder if there's a second one there, and I got to the end of the row, and there were three or four of these little elbows in that furrow. Now, at this point, as, I, as I'm heading towards the end of the message, I would like to invite the worship team, Travis and the rest of you, to please come join me here on stage. Now, some of you here this afternoon, some of you may have made a commitment to Christ when you were young, a commitment to follow him. And you look back big time, just like Pastor Rex in that story. You look back maybe in college. You look back maybe during midlife crisis or when you were out of town or on a vacation. And you look back and you see those major crooks in your record. And probably, in a way, even though you know that God has forgiven you, they still impact all of your life. But the point here is that from this point on, our attitude, your attitude, needs to be one of a stubborn allegiance to Christ. You don't look back again. No, never again do you question God's wisdom or His decisions. You don't question the what-ifs anymore. There's a Hillsong song that I love and the lyrics say, I will never be the same again. I can never return. I've closed the door. I will walk the path 
I will run the race and I will never be the same again. Let me ask you this question. Can you say that? Do you look at the record? Do you look at your life right now? You see where you are with Christ? Can you say that? This song, these lyrics can be true of you as they can be true of me. You'll never be the same again. But all this begins with Jesus Christ, the Lord of everything. Father, I thank you, Lord, that even right now, your spirit is working in our hearts, that you are whispering your truth into our minds, into our souls, into our lives. Father, I pray that every single one of us can be absolutely committed to you, that every single one of us would have the same attitude as you, Lord Jesus. I pray, Father, that you will draw us closer and closer to you each day, and that in all that we do, we can give you glory, and that we would truly be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, as we proclaim your truth with love and kindness to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.